Here we go. Monday night. Once again, time for Ira on Sports. Truly channel. I'm Mike Balsamo here as well. And Ira, we've got a great show on tap for you tonight, but pre-taped. Good reason for this. I, I want to preface this by saying this is like an interesting path you've taken here in the NBA playoffs. You started off with having tickets to game six, but not game four. And then you just realized, holy cow, I need to get tickets to game four. The Miami Heat could close this out. I probably won't get, get to a game six. Yet here you are in you know an hour from now about to get on a plane to go to Boston. Well, we're taping it in the morning, so I'm going to be in Boston right now for the game. But ter- ter- truly... Tickets are hard. I mean, I think what in the future, you just have to buy sixes and sevens in series. That's the only way to make this because the prices are just so high. I've never seen prices like this. I've been to game sevens. A few years ago, I went to the Cavaliers Celtics game seven and then flew the next day to see Houston Golden State game seven in Houston. So I've been to, I've gone to these game sevens and seen everything, but it's, uh, this, the ticket prices are crazy. Um, They work, I got, I've been so fortunate this entire, I've bought early and I bought grid seats. I know where to sit. I mean, on game six, I'm sitting right there when White uh, puts lay, lays the ball up in for the winning shot. I am only 20 rows right on that line from that. It was a perfect seat, and I had a great price because I was able to buy these tickets super. I bought that ticket a month ago almost, yeah. it feels like. But I have this tonight is going to go on and look at my pictures on Iron Sports because you're not going to see these pictures the rest of the way if I go to finals because you cannot get those seats anymore. Yeah, absolutely. At Iron Sports across social media is where you need to keep up with Ira's adventures, like you said, uh, we're, we're taping this on Monday morning, and Ira's jet-setting to Boston because he's got to be there for Game 7 uh, this evening. Ira, where have you been? We got to take in a part of uh, South Florida history on Wednesday night. Yes, I, I think it was my first sporting events with you. We saw the Florida Panthers uh, advance to go sweep Carolina, something that the Heat were unable to do and make <laughs> it to the And You know, I was looking, Matthew Chuchuk was at the game there, and wouldn't it have been helpful for the Heat to say, uh, why, how about bring Chuchuk in the game with three seconds <laughs> to go? But just, no, in the game. Oh. <laughs> like, you know, because considering that he has just been... He's more physical than most Heat he players. Is Clutch after clutch after clutch, and when it looked like the Panthers were about to give away the entire series, give away or give away the game at least, because they was they were up four, th- four three, uh, three, three, it was up three two, tied three three, mm-hmm. and with three seconds to go, he scores to make it four three, and now it's almost the same time frame with a few set point whatever off, but. I was just with Chuck. I was like looking at Chuck in the stands. I'm like, boy, just come out there and 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 play great defense. I'm sure that you can do something to stop them from scoring. I'm sure he could body somebody up, and we would see that. But it's interesting you bring that up, Ira, because this is what we're seeing now. The Panthers fortunately closed everything out. The Heat didn't close things out. Now they're in a game seven in the Western Conference Finals in hockey. It was 3-0 for Vegas. Now it's 3-2 and Dallas has all the momentum. You're making a case for needing to win these games early, not like let's get back home and win there. That's ridiculous. Win the games when you can. Yeah, totally. And that's what and I think that's what game four. I think that was a key game when, when Miami was up in that game. We're going to talk about it in a second and not to close it out at game four. That that's that this whole used to you lose one, then you lose two and then you lose three. A and then and now it's. <laughs> It's, it's a mess. Uh, so we've had him on the show before. Maybe the hottest commodity in NCAA coaching is Dusty May. What he did with FAU is absolutely fantastic. Uh, we're going to bring him on and talk about his successes and what's for the future for the Owls. Uh, th- not only last year taking a team uh, to the f- uh, Final Four, 
almost winning. I mean, in that game, talk about a, a classic yeah. ending. That game was as close as the, as the Heat game was on a last-second jumper and losing that game. So we're going to have, we just taped this interview last week. But uh, So he take the team in 5-4. But next year, people are like, okay, well, that was a, a one-and-done, one-hit wonder, whatever. They have everybody back. Yeah. They are in every poll. Minus one senior. Yeah, it, 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 they, except one senior. They bring everybody back. No transfer portals. They have a good freshman coming in. They are in everybody's top five or six in the country to run it back. And, and to, so this is, this is not just a one. This is gonna, this year is going to be tremendous for them, and they move to the American Conference. So, so pumped to have Dusty back because of how what great a job he did last year and then really looking forward to this year. Yeah, we're going to have Dusty May join us around uh, 7.45. Fantastic interview. So let's start with game four. This was, like, like you said, this was a, a game where it should have been closed out, and the Heat played competitive for, for good portions of this game. Yeah, I mean, it was Miami led 56-50 at halftime. Um, Struess was taking a, a three-pointer, and then it got blocked. They went up 61-52, and you're like, this, they're up nine. Uh, he, it was weird. It was one of those plays where Struess sh- took the three-pointer, got blocked, got the ball. It's like, oh, what's going on? Then he makes it. I mean, I, I, you never see that happen. Mm-hmm. And then you're up nine, and uh, it was like, at that point, then it was suddenly everything. But then Tatum at a three, Tatum at a three, White had a three, Brown at two, Tatum at three, Smart three. And it was like, just turn around, and it went, they went on an 18-0 run. The same thing they did when they were down 3-2 in game six to the Sixers and came back and won. The, the Celtics go on these runs where it's like they someone wakes them up and they just start scoring and making threes. And from 10-39 to 6-31, they went up. Then suddenly they went up 60-70 to 61. And in the fourth quarter, it, this is where it was really weird. 80-79 and in the fourth quarter, Butler and Tatum were out. The Celtics don't score for the first two minutes. The Heat struggle, but cut it to 80-83. The Celtics call a timeout. Well, Butler stays out of the game. Tatum comes back in the game. And then it's one of those things where they call the timeout and then the play starts and they just give Butler extra rest by when the play starts the next break. Well, in that break of action, Tatum came in. He scored a two. White, block, White had blocked Duncan Robinson. Brown had a dunk. And suddenly he had to call another timeout because by wasting t- Butler, you know, they should have had mm-hmm. Butler back in that game there. I mean, I, I love Spolstra. He's made that to me. I think he totally regrets not having Butler because that's where the game got away. 92-83. And then it was, uh, and then it was 97-83 and game was over. But that, they had a chance. I mean, that game, that game four, we would have been done a week ago. No game six, no game five, no game nothing. Uh, Tatum had 33 points, 11 rebounds, 11 assists. Butler started to play poorly. This was the game it was nine for 21, one for three. He had 29 points, nine boards and five assists. Bam, just 10 points. But you see uh, Callum Martin, 16 points. That is merging. And I'm going to keep talking about Callum Martin. Going forward, tonight, he is going to have to have a huge game. He is going to be the future one of the of the Heat. I, I just see a, a superstar merging right before our eyes because how well he's playing in the series, making big shots and making him playing great on defense. But that set up, it, it, it was a bad loss because if they don't go in an 18-0 run and if they can hold it together in the fourth quarter, then of course, we're not here. So, Ira, you know, you gave me a betting tip before game six. You said... Bet Caleb Martin's over on points for this game. It was 12 points. What did he have, 12 points by like six minutes into the game? I mean, this is what you're saying is true, and people should be paying attention to what you have to say on the Heat. Well, oh, and one last thing about game four that's when all the celebrities came out. So we had A-Rod was there. Uh, this is the bad sign for the Heat. A-Rod and Derek Jeter were both there. Now, they weren't anywhere near each other because in 2001, A-Rod, this is where the feud started because A-Rod was being in, in, interviewed by the Squire magazine, and he said, I'm the Yankee team. Jeter is just, the pressure's all on me. Jeter's just as one of the people that have to be there. I'm the one that they carry on, and Jeter did not like that comment, and that ended their, they were best well, friends. one of them's the captain, and one of them's not. Uh, it ended their <laughs> it, was, it was a ridiculous comment. But anyway, A-Rod's underneath the basket with Anthony Edwards, his star player, 
Minnesota Timberwolves. Jeter's with Hannah Jeter across the court from watching. And then there was Radmila Lolly, who's the woman who wears, the opera singer who wears all those fancy heat dresses. So she was sitting there. Jimmy Goldstein, who's the number one NBA super fan. He's been going for decades to every single game wearing the rhinestone hat. He usually sits underneath the basket. This time he was like at mid-court. He was sitting there. And I like the fact that a lot of these fans, like A-Rod during halftime, they didn't go back in the lounges. They stayed out at halftime. Of course, Mike McDaniel was there. He's been everywhere. We saw him at the Panther game, yeah. too. He was there, in, uh, in all except from the Dolphins. I mean, he, he supports the Heat more than college football coach. Like Nick Saban. I know Nick Saban does coach. Well, it's probably the wrong analogy. But uh, many college football coaches don't support their college basketball team. He is just totally into the Panthers, the Heat, mm. everything. And Brooks Kepka was, was there also. So it was pretty cool to have these sports celebrities at the game, seeing how they interact, talking to fans. Uh, that, that added some juice it, to the it game. It makes me wonder, you know, Kepka coming off the win of the PGA, what kind of house did he rent in Miami for that week when he's going to all these Panthers and, and uh, Heat games? Obviously, he's staying down there. He doesn't want to make the drive. He must have got some palace, you know, in, uh, in Cutler I don't know. Bay or maybe something he like got, that. Maybe. I, wait, that, was, it's, that is a good question. And oh, Jeremy Piven from the Entourage almost had, he was sitting right at midcourt and Van was shooting a foul shot. And as Van was shooting the foul shot, Piven's trying to get a, a, video, a, a video or a picture with a cell phone and he's on the court. And everyone's like, I mean, he is literally on the court. And he missed the foul shot. And then the fans, everyone's running back to Celtics. They almost ran him over. He's backing up. And it's like, that is an entourage. Like Larry David. Yeah, Ari, Ari Gold does what he wants. Yeah, <laughs> it was <laughs> unbelievable. How it was so much fun to see that. But those were the celebrities were out. The game four were the celebrity game. So moving into game five, by the way, this is Ira on Sports True Oldies channel. FAU coach Dusty May joins us at 745. Going into game five, my morale's a little bit down on this team. I know it's crazy to think that at 3-1 it'd be down. But then after game five, my morale was very low. I was not feeling good. Well, this is one where Jason Tatum started out like a steal for the first basket. Um, they started, Vincent was out. So Gabe Vincent, the, the per, Lowry had been the starting point guard when the year started, got injured. Vincent became the starting point guard, but now he was injured with his with an ankle. Uh, Jalen Brown hit a three. He was three for 26. Then he hits a three, and you're like, now you're getting nervous. And then it was like 15-5, and then it was 20-5. And it's just the game. This was the one game where you felt like, boy, the Celtics are going to blow them out, and they just did. They went up to 25. The only person keeping the game was Kevin Martin was playing great, but White was draining threes uh, just all over the place. And Brown hit a three, made it 38-20. And uh, then it was like, it was, the lead was 20. It was 17 at halftime. Heats were just, the Heat were just turning the ball over. They had 10 turnovers at halftime, and I think 18 for the entire game. And it was it was like, smart, you know, it, it, it was just the game was over. The Heat shot in the third quarter, 76%. And they still uh, were outscored because they had five turnovers. It was 90-72 after three. And the only thing was Highsmith for he came in and actually played well. So you thought that he might be back for game six and play a role, but he didn't even play at all. But it was a weird game, but it was like, it was the game where it broke just how you thought it was, where they, they weren't going to play well. Butler only had another bad game for Butler, 14 points, Bam, 16 points. Um, and they started playing Duncan Robinson more, which was foreshadowing what was going to happen in game six, which I do think was an issue. I, I'd rather have Struess in there than Duncan Robinson, especially in the fourth quarter. But uh, that set up for game six. That was two days ago. So Ira, you know, we're seeing now declining stats with Jimmy Butler. Is it safe? You watch more Heat than anybody. 
Is it safe to say that he's tired at this point? Because it just doesn't look like the same Jimmy Butler we saw for the first two series and the first two games here. They had a half a dozen shots that were blocked. He's clearly not getting the lift off his legs that he was getting before to, to elevate it. I have pictures. Go look at my pictures and go look at pictures and see where he is shooting the ball in this series, in, in the last couple games, as opposed to the first two games or in the Knicks series or before. He's just getting, it just seems like he's not getting that lift. I know he's in knee problems and he, and he hurt his ankle earlier in the, in the Knicks series, but it's just that lift that he's getting, and, and it's just, it's so hard, it's imperceptible when you watch it on TV, but you could just see in the pictures, he's just not have that elevation, he's not shooting. Now, the thing was that at the end of the game, he gets fouled and he went to the line and scored 10 points on the line, and, that, and then criticized Boston, or criticized the ref, or whatever, of saying, okay, he's totally off, he's five, he shot for the game, five for 21, what are you putting someone who's shooting five for 21 on the line when he's missing all these shots, and he made a big three, so that was the big, that was the, that, that was the, that was the question, he made that three, and he he has, and he's still shooting foul shots well, 12 for 14. But you're right. You Is Jimmy Butler going to come out and score? Is it going to be like, is it, are we going to see 50 points from Tatum and 50 points from Butler? Because both have done this. Both have put up these huge mm-hmm. numbers in these big games. Tatum just in a game seven against Philly. So tonight, it's going to be interesting to see what will happen if these two guys will come out and do those 50-point games. So moving into game six, you know, we talked briefly about the Panthers uh, earlier. That's a game that's going to live in South Florida history forever. Game no. six is going to live in South Florida history forever, too, but in infamy in, in this situation. <laughs> yes. I mean, Vincent was back in, and then they started Calamardi instead of Kevin Love, who didn't even play the entire game, which was a surprise. And now no Malcolm Brogdon for Boston. He's the sixth man of the year. It is a tough loss for Boston, but he had hurt his shoulder earlier and is just progressively getting worse and had not played well in this series, so he decided to, to sit him out. Um, it was 34-29 to end with Martin with 12 points. And then 8.50 left in the second quarter. Butler got a second foul, and that hurt him because he stayed in the game was still guarding Tatum and that Tatum's then oh Butler has two fouls and he scored again and again and again over him and that was like that was what I felt like wow Butler could they get him off like put Martin on like I thought it was too slow realizing that Butler could not guard Tatum Tatum ended with 25 points in the first half and just and the only thing keeping the heat in the game were seven threes I mean it was the and then at the end of the first half they closed on a 12-5 run to only be down 57-53 but the key was for the half the heat were nine for 15 from three Boston was three for 15 from threes. Those three-point shooting was just crucial for them, and Butler was awful. And then, this is the second half, had some of the crazy... I'm at the stadium, and I can't tell you... I was joking with my friends. It's like watching a summer league game, and you're like... What was the call? The scoreboard is wrong. No one knows what's going on. I am so confused. And you're in the stands and they're making announcements. It wasn't this so loud. It was just like the scoreboard was all right. I rewatched the game on, t- on, on, the, on TV, rewatched it. They even said the scoreboard's wrong. And like nobody knew what was going on in the arena. That's what was so crazy. The scores were always wrong. It's like if you go to a summer league game and someone's keeping the score, someone's girlfriend or boyfriend <laughs> is out there keeping the score and, they, and, they, uh, and, and they're just like, you know, <laughs> drinking a beer and keeping score and they're all messed up something it was like how does this happen how do you not get this right with all the referees there's a referee at the desk but it was a it was crazy so first of all the first crazy call was 11 19 crazy calls brown has a three and scored and spolster then challenged it and said he wanted a charge and then there was a there was there was a, a jalen brown went and it was that could have been brown's fourth foul but it wasn't so he ended up getting an and one on that play but that could have been, it ended up being Calum martin's third foul and not brown's fourth 
it was weird that Spolster challenged it. But right after that, Bam went on the ground and was tied up, and that he had called a, uh, a timeout. So the Heat played almost the second half with just two timeouts, and they had to use one to start in the fourth. You're required in the NBA to have use one every quarter. But they were only down two. It's like on the board, it said Boston five timeouts, Boston, uh, Miami only two. So I think that sort of hurt them throughout the game. And then... Uh, with 109 left in the third, Celtics were up 11, and they were ready to blow it open, but they just could not. It just, it, it was just, it, it was just every quarter. It was like a the Miami's like the boxers at the end of a round that like had this flurry and kept it in there because it was almost like, are they going to go in the fourth quarter? They're going to be down 15, down 16, game over. They cut it down. It was 79, 72 going into the fourth, and at 919, Butler scores and is fouled. 82, 78, and made 82, 80, and so the clock, the scoreboard says 82, 80, but then they rule it a charge and then like what are they reviewing and they're reviewing whether it was a flagrant on the charge because he pushed his hand so it was like it was like so the, the announcer's like he goes the call has been challenges reversed we we can't tell who was initiating these challenges but I didn't know what was going on and nobody around me knew what was going on and I think nobody in the arena and I don't think nobody on the scoreboard knew, uh, knew what was going on and what happened and what the score actually was was it 80 because the scoreboard said 8280 but it's really 8278 for like a while and then Duncan Robinson hit a three made it 82 281. And at that point, Duncan Robinson had more points than Jimmy Butler did in the game, which is crazy. And then Butler tipped up, made it 83-82, which is almost like the high watermark before the end of the game of the Heat. They go up 83-82. But then in one of the key moments of the entire game, 737 left. I, I, have to, I love going over this whole thing. Brown goes in and he gets fouled and it, no one knew what was it. They, was it Brown on an offensive charge and then Bam Adebayo fouled him. So everyone wants to know what are they reviewing? And what they were reviewing, it ended up being a four-point play. Brown made the basket, then Bam fouled him and Bam grabbed the rim so they got a delay of game penalty for handling the rim. So, so it, it, that was like, and then Brown made three, two free throws. So that's a four-point play. They go up 86-83. Horford blocked Bam down on the other end, which was unbelievable block. And then Brown has two, two more free throws. So it's 629 left. It's 90-83. And you're like, oh my gosh, another blow. Like Boston's blowing this game out. Duncan Robinson comes back, makes a three. So now it's three minutes left. The Celtics are up 191 after Tatum makes two free throws. Vincent makes, this is where the Celtics, I can't trust them. They had this game one. They're up nine. And they blew it game seven last year. They had the same situation where they were, where they blow, they blew the game and Butler had a chance to win it at the end. And it's the Celtics exact score and everything. Vincent had a layup. Horford had an easy shot that he misses. Then Butler made a three, the big three. Tatum then went and made this, missed his stupid layup and it's a 196. And then Tatum fouls Butler. He makes just one, but he get a rebound. And then at 197, Robinson, with the ball out there, misses the shot. He had a chance to win the game and had to tie the game and didn't do it. But then Tatum is just, at that point, you know, it was they, they, it was one, one minute left. They're still up, 101-97. Butler drives to the basket with layup and foul, so he makes a three-point play there. And then Tatum comes down. So they're up one. They come. This is the Celtics' final, ultimate, you know, this is the most important time for them. Tatum takes two shots, and he's blocked twice on the shots. So Tatum, who had this game, this great first half when he scores 25 points, he doesn't score anything in the third. In the fourth, he was a disaster, missing shots. And then, then with 21 seconds to go, they they have a chance to win the game. They're only down one. Duncan Robinson has this wide open. He had two wide open threes at the end. Misses an absolutely wide open three, and he fouled Smart. But Smart goes to the line and only makes one out of two. I mean, we talked about Dusty May and talk about the playoffs. So like, I can't <laughs> believe these teams are missing free throws. Everyone was missing free throws the entire game. Butler was missing for Smart, Brown, everyone. 16 le seconds left. Heat, you know, hit, Butler goes down. He shoots, 
and he's fouled. And then it's like, again, you're like, is it a two? Is it a three? How many seconds are left? Again, it's such confusion about what is going on, about what are they challenging? People said, and I checked this again, it wasn't the Celtics challenge. It was the, it was a, it was a, a board, it was a, a referee initiated challenge that challenged whether Butler had shot that what it was with three or two. They ruled it a three. He got Horford fouled him. He goes to the line and he makes three. So then they call timeout. So now this is the play that everyone's talking about. They're down one. And usually in situations like that, you're like, well, in the old days, if you ran a play with three seconds and they got it like a midcourt line out of bounds, you throw the ball to a big guy up and maybe and dunk the ball in. You only need a two. Mm-hmm. You don't need a three. Everyone's talking about a three. You don't need a three. Um, they took Duncan Robinson out. They put Max Strus in. Max Strus hadn't played for like 70 minutes, so he's a little cold. He's not really in the flow of the game. I would have liked Strus taking those three than than Robinson. Strus has been their player all year. He's been starter all year. I just thought, and I think he's playing well, so I don't know why he wasn't in the game. But again, for most of the fourth quarter, so Strus comes in. He's guarding the out of bounds with Derek White, but he's not really guarding because he's looking for Tatum. Everyone thinks Tatum's going to get the ball. Tatum doesn't work hard to get the ball. Butler is on him. Tatum cuts to like midcourt. Then Jalen Brown is at the foul line. He comes across. Horford is on the further right, just stands there, doesn't even move at all. But Smart comes really hard to the ball. He catches the ball. Vincent is on him. And I thought when White inbounded the ball that White would go and they'd throw it to White. That might have been like, you know, really fast or do that. No, but White. But so Smart goes. And this is where the Heat totally, I disagree with every commentary about this. The Heat totally did, they just did, they, Vincent, after Smart releases the ball, is celebrating. He puts his hands up, doesn't even rush to the basket. Brat Butler, who is guarding Tatum, doesn't even just stands there too and lets Tatum cut to the basket. Caleb Martin just stands in the corner, does nothing, and Struess lets White dribble down. Now, I have no idea how all this happened in three seconds. Not only did White inbound those balls to Smart, Smart had to do a turnaround of a shot, then he shoots this high arcing ball. White had to go cut to the corner and then cut all in three seconds. Three seconds. It's the longest three seconds in my history. It was the history. longest. And I'm watching it. And I'm like, I think it's, a, if it was in Boston, I'd say it's a slow finger, you know, to start the clock. But I, I just, and then, but the thing is, Tatum's gunning down. Butler did not box him out. I thought when the basket went in that Tatum had scored it because they were both there. Spolster goes, well, the ball just had to bounce the right place. No, the ball could have bounced anywhere except where Callum Martin was, who wasn't doing anything, just standing there doing nothing. Struess was following White. But if Vincent would have, after he smart released it, would have rushed to the basket they didn't have to get the rebound. Just block out. They just blocked the block them out. It was that failure. The only person who did their job was Bam. Bam was blocking out Brown. I rewatched this play 20 times. I watched how everybody played. Bam was the only one who did what he was supposed to do. Callum Martin didn't do what he was supposed to do. Butler, Vincent, and Struess did it. And that's how this happened. They had two Celtics, and that's what everyone says, crash the boards on these last second shots. How many times I was thinking of NC State when they beat Houston. This is way before everybody's time. The famous Lorenzo Charles, where Derek Wittenberg shot this air ball at the end of the game and Lorenzo Charles was just standing underneath it and dunked it. It's like, that's those are the winners, these tip-ins. That's what you have to do. And the Heat have been so great at getting loose balls, scramble plays. The one time they needed to play great, just the one time they weren't able to do it. It was, like I said, a moment in a game that's going to live in infamy, Ira, especially if the Miami Heat can't win this this series tonight. It, you, had, you know, we talked off air and you thought that maybe this is on Spo. I don't know if I put it on Spo. Like, Coaching is obviously important, but can you coach guys to not make 
dumb mistakes and not to play to the whistle. I mean, you can, but I don't know if I blame him. Well, here. we give a supposed I give Spolster tons of credit. I think the idea is that perhaps Struess they were so concerned about Tatum getting the ball, they were so concerned that Struess was sort of like in nowhere's land, no man's land. Maybe, but Struess should have said, "Well, worry about White. White was hot. I mean, White and Smart were the only ones making threes. The uh, uh, Tatum uh, was 0 for eight for the game. Brown was 0 for four from from three point shots. So that's the, this is the advantage the Boston has. They do have a lot of scores on their team, but White was smart. Tatum was smart to crash the boards. This whole crashing the boards, I I just don't understand why. Even if Butler, this is, I, I know this sounds, you look at Struess play. If Butler had followed Tatum, he would have been there right when White caught the ball as causing confusion. There would have been, he'd been standing there. I don't think White could have got that easy. Literally, there was nobody around no, White except Tatum. They were only two Celtics around the board. And that other also hurts the fact is maybe he could have had a big, you know, a big center if they had someone tall that could have stand there and block the shot on a rebound. But not to be ready for that three seconds. Maybe the Heat said we're never going to, they're not going to have a chance to get that because it, 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 they'll never get over. But watch the play. I, I, I implore people to watch it again and again. It's Struess's fault for not following White, but it's also Butler and also Martin and Vincent for not crashing the boards. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Dusty May of the FAU Owls joins us around 745. You can follow Ira anywhere at Ira on Sports. This show is pre-recorded because Ira is in Boston right now as, as this airs, uh, getting ready for a Game 7. Um, you know who's not going to see a Game 7, Ira? The LA Lakers. And I, I don't pat myself on the back too often, but I call the Denver sweep here. I really just thought Denver was hands down the best team left in, in, in the uh, Final Four here. And what do you know? They, they went on. Lakers were competitive in every game. I'll give them that. But Denver proved that they're just too much to handle for a team like the Lakers. It was one of these games where the Lakers, I'll tell you, I, 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 LeBron got bashed after this game. I thought LeBron played absolutely amazing. I, 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 he is a, has a torn tendon in his foot. I criticize LeBron. He's not Jordan. But boy, is he so much better than everyone else, it seems like. <laughs> he played all 48 minutes. The Lakers, he scored 30 points in the first half. He had, he had uh, 24 minutes. He was 11 for, for, 11 for 13, 4 for, for the, from the foul line, 5 for 5 from 3, 31 points, 4 rebounds. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Best playoff half he's ever had supposedly and 80 just had four points in the first half and they're up by 15 like forcing now a game five which everyone thought boy if it goes back to Denver for game five but Denver goes on a 24-8 run to start the third quarter and uh, and at one point Denver outscored the Lakers 36 to 16 uh, Joker at 13 points in this quarter and then in the in the fourth quarter it was like when this game was really really tight Jokic and Gordon Jokic just took over he hit a falling away three with 320 left Austin Reeves I, when I'm talking about Kyle Martin, I think Austin Reeves is going to be a superstar. I'm not a super, superstar, meaning I think he's made an all-star. He, you cannot be making shots that he made, the plays that he made, the three-point shooting. He's not just three-point shooting, the driving, everything he's doing. And it was just, he was tremendous at the end. And uh, uh, it was, uh, it was, Jokic just drove. And then Jokic hit the drive, the drive at 113-111. He drove, made it to LeBron, missed a shot. Uh, Murray shoots and misses. And then four seconds left. I mean, LeBron had a chance to win. You know, we got, this game went down at the end. This seemed like you know 10 years ago when they played it was only a week ago that they played but LeBron had a chance at the end of the game and Aaron Gordon and Jamal Murray Aaron Gordon that's the size we talked about Denver Aaron Gordon is bigger than LeBron and he's guarding LeBron and Murray comes over and steals the ball perfect playing perfect game for them and uh, look Denver has played 
Mike Malone, their coach, has been there for seven years, since 2015, with Jokic, with Murray. Murray came in 2016. Porter Jr. came in 2019. They are, this team has been gearing for this. Anyone who watches them during the season, they had the best record in the, you know, best record in the West, and they gave it sort of up at the end. But Jokic, 30 points, 14 boards, 13 assists. Murray, 25 points. Porter had uh, 15 points. Just a great game. Aaron Gordon, if Aaron Gordon can play like that, there's, they're not going to lose any games. And then Jeff Green and Bruce, Jeff Green and Bruce Brown off the bench. But in the end, I really liked how I, I felt. I, I just am not criticizing LeBron. I think AD was terrible, did not come to play. They Schroeder was bad. You're just wondering with the Lakers if they could just get another piece, if that's enough to go through. Because I just thought LeBron, he played great. I thought it was a great game. But Jokic, finally people are watching him like, boy, he's really good. I mean, he's a two-time MVP. And now people are finally watching saying, boy, this Jokic guy is, <laughs> really knows how to play basketball. A lot of people are saying he should have been the three-time MVP yes. now that this is happening. Rumors swirling that LeBron might, you know, get his way out of L.A. I don't know if you buy into this at all. People are saying maybe Golden State. I think he's just. I don't I think, think he would do that. LeBron almost every year has had his contract up where he's able to go, so he likes to have leverage. So now he does it. He is tied to them for this year. So I think his now his leverage is well. I might retire. I think he's just trying to push them. I think there's an issue to they sign Kyrie Irving instead of if Kyrie Irving's in there instead of Schroeder. Rui Hachimura start to play well. Austin Reeves was playing great. They put that team together, maybe that's enough. Now, they didn't get along in Cleveland. I mean, they won a title, but afterwards, for the, they went to a playoffs, and then Kyrie won it out, didn't want LeBron. But who knows, at this point, it is a way. I mean, LeBron is such a great facilitator. Kyrie could score 30 points a game on this team. I think it's a much better fit for Kyrie in Los Angeles. I don't think LeBron wants to leave Los Angeles. I, don't I think, think so he either. loves it. His son is playing at he's USC. Playing, he's going to USC. Yeah, so. it's only a few miles away from their house and where he plays. I just think it works out well. I think he's comfortable in there, and I think he likes... I think he's going to go run this back and I think he's going to get his foot fixed and then play. The thing is, the same thing we talked about the Heat, they they almost need uh, Kyrie because if Kyrie can play the 20-some or 30-some games LeBron's not going to play and score, they need someone who's just get them in the playoffs. That's why I said about Tyler Hero for the for the Heat. Tyler Hero doesn't fit with this team. He's not works well with how they're playing now, but they need Tyler Hero in the games that Butler doesn't play to score 30 points so they can win the games and eventually make the playoffs. It, it, yeah, basketball's funny like that, that you can get yourself in a... a a roster situation where I need this guy, but I don't need him at the same time. They needed Russell Westbrook when they brought him in just to play minutes, just to have someone with the ball in their hands. Obviously, he's not the solution, but it's funny how that works. Well, you're going to see load management next year with it, with the, how the Heat, these teams have got to the playoffs. I really think you're going to see the older stars to hardly play, like 50 games. So you're going to have situations. I mean, load management is here to stay. It's not going to change. And, uh, and you know, when, when even the Clippers say Kawhi and Paul George are going to play more, what, they're going to play 60 instead of 45? <laughs> like, the point is that they, they, they're going to give these players rest and at what point you know do you, you have to win enough games now but that's why they made the play in 10 teams so they have chance better chance to get in ira on sports true oldies channel i'm mike balsamo you can follow ira across social media at ira on sports let's talk a little hockey ira because one south florida team got the job done in impressive fashion i might add this was something though that i, I kind of felt the same way that i did about the heat that you are playing a good team and you don't want to let them back in and, you know, game one was a backbreaker for Carolina. Four overtimes, Panthers got the win. Game four, well, which we were at, we were, you know, it, it's the same thing. Like, if they don't win in overtime and you let Carolina get back, you don't know where this series would be right now. I was so happy that they got it done. And as we talked about to start the show, Matthew Kachuk is just something else. Well, I mean, Denver did the same thing. Denver was like, it was it been easy for Denver to say, we're going back to Denver anyway. So let's just go back and play them there. No, they finished it off. And I think that's what, that's the key. That fourth game, when we come back and look when the Heat had that lead, 
it, we're going to talk about the sixth game forever if we blow, if the Heat blow the series. But the fourth game, when they had the lead and like went, let Boston go on the 18-0 run, that was a difference. The fact that that Florida had the lead in the game, they scored, Carolina scored. We were on the end when Carolina scored to tie it. And then we're thinking, this is going to overtime because they were only a few mm-hmm. minutes away from winning going to the Stanley Cup. And then Chuck with three seconds to go, hits that, he scores. And then it was like they had the review. Everybody who was there, they threw, there's a the whole story. We didn't even realize there was going to be a review. I think they kind of took the wind out of the sails a little They took the review. Bit. Everybody threw plastic rats on the ice because one time, many years ago, a Florida Panther, there was a rat in the locker room in the old Miami arena that doesn't exist. And he hit the rat with a stick. and then and he came out and scored two goals, so now that started a trend of people throwing rats on the ice. Yeah. So the whole f- ice was filled with rats, but then they had to still play another th- what, three seconds to go in the game. Mm. So they went, they go, the goal was scored, they took the rats off, they scored, and then they threw the rats on. And then the issue was why Chuck, should he touch, should he, it's the Prince of Wales trophy, right? That he Yes. Is. So should he touch that trophy? The, the, Typically, the winners of the conferences refuse to touch the conference trophy because we're not here for this. We're here for the Stanley Cup. It's an old hockey tradition. Panthers broke that tradition and it didn't seem to bother them too bad. Right. No, but it was it was exciting to be there and exciting to get of the game. And you do like the tradition of the handshake line after the game. I have a great one of my best pictures. I look at all my pictures again and again. And I think with a when I think Chuck was on the ice just skating around and he's the only person out there on the ice. And the rats were all the whole it was like the there were plastic rats a thousand on the ice. And it's just him and then you have these people picking up the rats. I love that picture. It just seemed to me like, and then you saw on the side, the Carolina on the side, like they were on the bench, like, yeah. like it devastated. It was like, wow, that's like Sports Illustrated cover. Like, I love that. It's one of my <laughs> favorite pictures that I've ever taken. So. Um, you can see it at Ira on Sports. This game didn't bring out maybe the celebrity uh, prowess of a Miami Heat game, but you said earlier, Mike McDaniel's there in a Panthers jersey with his name on the back. This guy's doing the- Pounding the, the, the drum so, to yeah. start the game. Like, he doesn't just show up and whatever. He is involved. <laughs> <laughs> He's there showing him. He's getting people excited. I mean, I got you gotta like him. I mean, you gotta like his enthusiasm. He embraces why, this city. I'll give him that. And you can see why his team likes him. He has, he just has so much enthusiasm. And is as I said during the games, he's the first. He's one. I'm there ninety minutes before the game. When this, the, he's there, and he doesn't take a break at halftime, and he stares the whole time, and he shakes every hand, signs every autograph. I mean, he's like he is like the college football coach, like raising money. It's like Mike, you know, you he's don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to do anything. You know, you're the coach. It's whatever. So there's there's it's something. I I the more I see him at the games. The more I see how he interacts with people, like I've never seen him once someone come up to him and say no. Like anybody, he'll sign every autograph, do everything. At the game when Shaq and Barkley were there, when the TNT was broadcasting, I saw the same thing. They would sign every single autograph. Shaq has this great thing where he goes and the kids like tries to have signed something and he looks at it and then takes it and the kid's like, why aren't you stealing my doll or whatever? And they were such kids. And I think that's awesome because that's the one thing in basketball you don't get at other sports is that in football, there's no one sort of standing, you know, you're not sitting in a chair next to Bill Belichick, you know, on the field. Like, it's pretty cool mm. that you have sideline passes, but usually it's very few, but you don't have chairs there. Basketball's neat that they're all there, and McDaniel is always in the front row, always sitting around, and just great, tremendous. Also got to see uh, hockey daddy, Yaramir Yager, was, was in attendance. Brooks Kepka there as well. We were looking for Kepka. You know, looking in the suites, he was there and he was partying it up with his friends afterwards. We couldn't find him. Kepka says, Kepka said, I saw an interview because he played Live this weekend. He said, I am good luck for hockey, bad luck for basketball. So, uh, but he embraces South Florida sports too. I mean, it's West Palm Beach kid. Yeah, this is awesome. So going into the other series, one thing I'll say from a Panthers perspective is I don't know how I feel about the other series going, you know, going into game six uh, today. Hockey's not like basketball. There's no set date to start the Stanley Cup. Once both teams are done, we start playing. So 
you, you think it's a bad thing that the Panthers are 11 and one in their last 12 games. I kind of don't want them sitting. But at the same time, I like that the two teams in the West are beating each other I up. I saw so somewhere where they're saying they'll start Saturday. So it's going to be actually next Saturday. Regardless, yeah, be, regardless yeah. of anything. They well, because now we're at game six. So game yeah. six, so they're going to start on Saturday, which gives them what, 10 days off or 12 days off, which is going to be crazy. So uh, that we were at Wednesday. So we actually, they Wednesday, yeah, it would be like 10 days off. Um, I don't know. I don't, you know. I don't know either. It would be funny if we, two teams in hockey and basketball both down 3-0 came back and won, which is Dallas. But... It's one of those things where the Panthers are, but the Panthers at least know from their perspective, we sort of know that they're going to be, they have the worst record. So they have the first two games that they would play like on uh, Tuesday, the following week, next week at home, the two games, Wednesday and Friday. Yeah, it's interesting. Going into both of these series, I thought to myself, you know, has has it ever happened that all four teams swept in the NBA and NHL uh you know, conference finals. It has happened in the NHL. Both teams have swept, um, but but we've never seen, you know, 03 comebacks. So who knows if we'll see that in uh, Dallas and Vegas. We're going to find out sooner rather than later. Ira on Sports, Drew Oldies Channel. Let's talk a little bit of racing. And this was an interesting one uh, this weekend that you were kind of excited about. Well, Monaco is the premier Formula One event. It has become the worst race because the the race course, it's the most famous because you can see the ships. It's beautiful. It's unbelievable. The ships, the zillion dollar ships that houses everything. It's just it's just stunning to watch this opulence. race. It is just it's compared to the Florida. Look, Florida's a great race. It's there's no comparison. It is out of this world. It's when you think of Formula One racing, that's what you think about. But you can't race there because the, the it's too narrow. There's too many turns. Everyone you can't turn. There's nowhere to pass. And it's usually a it's a procession. It's like if you get the if you get the uh, qualify in your league in a pole position, you're going to win the race, and it's going to stay. It's almost a procession. This year was different. It started to rain in the middle of the race, and as it started to rain, um, cars got got slower, they had to pit differently with the tires, those things. So it actually added a lot of excitement. And also the start, the fact that Verstappen started on medium uh, tires, whereas Alonso, who was the second position, started on hard tires. So they were going to switch up. But then when it started raining, there was a question whether should Alonso switch or whatever. But Verstappen is so good. He is just on anything, whether it's raining out, bad tires, this, he just runs. His car is great. He's a great driver. And he cruised to an easy victory. And he has this lead. And the thing that helped him best was uh, Sergio Perez, his teammate, who was the only one who could really catch him. I mean, now Verstappen's won four of the six races. Perez won the other two. Perez had it started out terrible. He crashed in qualifying and ended up being out of the points and was like near the back of the field the whole time, pitted like five times and couldn't stay in it. But it was like, this race was neat because of, of the fact that, uh, and then Esteban Ochon from Alpine, which is a team that you never see up there, actually made the uh, podium position, which is one of the first times that for Alpine do that. And Ferrari had, they had trouble. They, they they were, they were complaining. This race was fun, though, because you heard the drivers talk, and they were like, are you trying to crash me? Are you sites was yelling at us? Like, are you trying? What are you trying to do? What are, I want to pit. And it was like back and forth. You can hear that gone. And I think I give uh, Formula One credit for they don't have to air it. They actually air this stuff at the drivers yelling. It. The drivers yelling at their thing. But this was this was a good race. And then the Indy race that was next. Yeah, Indy 500. That's the, you know, the biggest race in, in the, the world of, of motor racing. And this was one... I got to admit, I, I was kind of surprised at the, at the result here. Well, Joseph Newgarden, a Penske one, he, it was Penske's 19th victory. He actually owns the track. They had 300,000 fans there. The race was going smoothly, roast of the race, and then there was a, a horrendous crash. Felix Ro- Rosenquist and Kyle Kirkwood crashed into Kirkwood goes, and he flipped over and went like a half a mile on the upside down, and you're like, oh my God. He, they flipped the car over, he jumps out. He's fine. It's unbelievable. These cars are so safe. 
It is amazing how they're designed, the engineering of that. And his tire actually flew out and went in the stands, which is, they have these big fences. I can't believe the tire actually flew out and did that. That was a red flag. They had more red flags. It comes in that Marcus Erickson is in first place and he thought he had won the race, but they said they did what they did in Formula One was first staff and him with like, you know, we want you to run one more lap. But so he's in the first place and Joseph Newgarden is in second place, but you want to be in second place because you just come out of the pits, run one lap. It always gives the second place a chance to draft, slingshot, go ahead, you know, like Todd Egg at night, shake and bake and and go ahead. And that's what happened. And and it's I felt bad for Erickson because he's like, at least give me a shot, go two, three laps, give me a shot to come back and take it. But Newgarden went past him and won the 500. He got so excited. He ran in the stands, went crazy. Uh, He's from Nashville. He's the first American born racer since 2016 to win. But uh, it was that ending was fun. And, and but I do think it's the same thing with Formula One is that you just can't set the race up in such a way that this person in second place has a chance just to pass and win. Ira on Sports Trulies channel. I'm Mike Balsama. We have about five minutes or so until FAU Owls basketball coach Dusty May joins us. DeAndre Hopkins waved by the Cardinals. I don't know if, if, if they're completely they don't want to win games. Let's be honest. They're going to be one of the worst teams in the league this year. I think that DeAndre Hopkins played his way out of Arizona anyway. He's been openly bashing them. He talks about quarterbacks he'd like to play with. He doesn't seem like he's a fit in the building, and now he's not in any building. Why I wanted to talk about this was Hopkins is one of those rare players. He played at Houston, was there from 2013 to 19 and averaged almost 100 catches a season. He goes to Arizona, 220, was traded. They say the worst trade, but Bill O'Brien just didn't want him, didn't want, traded him and traded him to Arizona and he catches 115 balls for 1,400 yards. Now the last he had, he got suspended for PEDs and he was hurt. So, but he had played 10 games the last past years, but he's still 31 years old. He's a superstar. And you don't have to trade anything for him. He's a free agent. He can sign with anyone. He is a difference maker. Like I, when I look at someone like Hopkins, it's not like even Odell Beckham has had these major knee surgeries or some other players. Hopkins is like when the, the Dolphins trade for Tyreek Hill. It was an investment trading draft choices. It's like you can just sign him. And there's so and when you look at they were going through a list of all the teams. Any team could use him. He could be the number one wide receiver on any of these teams. The fact it was just weird that the Arizona they want Kyler Williams and next year they're going to trade Kyler Murray because they're going to draft, they're going to have the worst, Arizona definitely wants to have the worst record in football. This is clearly that attempt. You can see everything they're trying to do. And um, they desperately want Caleb Williams to be their quarterback and they want to get rid of Kyler Murray, who they could trade and get three draft picks for because he's one of the top quarterbacks in the league. But I'm just intrigued where he's going to go. Now, people say, oh, he'll go to New England. Well, he's not going to New England. Bill O'Brien's the offensive coordinator. He's never <laughs> no. going to sign him. But it's almost any team that you put him on. You could put Hopkins on any playoff team. Kansas City, if he goes to Kansas City, he's catching 100 balls. Yeah, I mean, see you later. I yeah. mean, that is unbelievable. And and, they, and, and that's where Hopkins could, uh, you could just see him make a difference on when we're looking at different teams. There's not one team he wouldn't fit into and go in because he's that good. He had the lowest drop. He doesn't drop passes. He gets open. He catches everything. And he had the lowest drop of, of the NFL the last two, three years when this was two of his bad years. So like over five years, he's the lowest drop. He's an elite wide receiver that can really make, you talk about players make a difference. I can't wait to see where he goes because if he goes to Kansas City, oh, fantasy, number one. Yeah, see you I later. Mean, yeah. uh, I see a bidding war between the Jets and the Bills. I think that this is going to be like an arms race between those two teams. Both have Super Bowl aspirations. Both teams 
have number one receivers, but he would instantly become their best receiver when healthy. So that's what I'm leaning towards. I would love the Giants to sign him. It's not like they don't have wide, wide receiver issues, but where he ends up is going to be interesting to see. He's going to a contender. He's not going to go play for some team that's not going to be, you know, looking for a Super Bowl. So I don't know. Uh, we've got an interesting couple of weeks as we get, uh, what are we, three months away from fantasy drafts <laughs> as we try to figure this out. Patrick Mahomes, he seems to do all the right things, right, Ira? I mean, who else would you want leading your franchise besides Patrick Mahomes? He's not only the best quarterback in football, he's really got a good head on his shoulders, and he was maybe under a little bit of fire for some comments that he made earlier in the week. Some people misconstrued what he said about, I'll take less money. Well, I think it's this, to me, it's not less money. I, that's why I criticize Aaron Rodgers. And I think the idea is that if you're a superstar, if you're a, a running back, or if you're an offensive lineman or something like that, you want to get the most get money paid. possible. Get paid, get paid. But if you're... Patrick Mahomes, you're Aaron Rodgers. We're watching you on television. You're not just doing the commercials. You're investing. You're in businesses. You're doing all these things. It's like, for you, it's not just the legacy of winning titles. It's the fact that you have a brand. The Patrick Mahomes brand with four more Super Bowls is a much better brand than it is with zero Super Bowls. So he can <laughs> leverage that to make more money. And I said the same thing like a real estate developer. If you could have, if you have this big, nice, beautiful apartment building and you're selling apartments, would you rather have Whole Foods in the basement or would you rather have, or someone who's going to pay more, say, a car repair place or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a car repair place might pay more, but a Whole Foods is going to add value to the building. So the idea is take less money. Like if I'm Rogers or Mahomes, I would take league minimum because you're murdering so much more outside than you are in. And it's, for your, it's not just your legacy in winning rings. It's because you can then earn more money. I mean, Tom Brady was taking money, less money all the time. Now that enabled him to sign all these endorsements, get involved in these things, and he can buy the Raiders and has an ownership stake in the Raiders. So for these elite, the Rogers, the Mahomes, the Bradys of the world, and Hertz said the same thing. I mean, you're already making $30 million. Does it matter that you want to be, I want to be the highest paid quarterback? Mahomes doesn't care. He absolutely, I don't care if I'm 10. Like, let him be 10. He knows he's the best. Yeah. I'd rather be known as the best. And he's making more money outside. He can be make $100, $200 million. The movie Air, we had Sonny Vaccaro on. Michael Jordan made pittance in playing basketball. The, his brand is making... He's worth a billion dollars. <laughs> that's where he made his billion dollars. So it's the outside basketball interest. And that's why I think Mahomes smart. It's not that he's taking less money to help us. He's taking less money to increase his brand, so he's worth more money to make you more money. You could also be increasing your career by getting a better left tackle, <laughs> getting a better center, getting a better line in general. This helps you. And this is something I read. We're talking a lot of hockey tonight. Hockey players have been doing this for years. I'll take a pay cut. Get me this right wing. You play on a line with this guy. I'm playing with this guy all season. I only get two of them. I'll take $2 million less for you to sign this guy that I want. It, it makes perfect sense. It's going to make my season better. It's going to make my legacy better. Aaron Rodgers is about Aaron Rodgers and bent the Packers over a barrel to get the most money. And, you know, it didn't work out for them because he had no receivers around him. It's interesting how that works. But, again, Patrick Mahomes is just class act. Love the guy. French Open here. And this is... Uh, Rafa Nadal not playing. He's. I think he said next year is his final one. Final year, probably. So where are we at at this? this? It's the seating, and I'm going to just say my one thing about tennis. Tennis just doesn't want to be popular. It just, they try. <laughs> they truly, they do everything. So... Djokovic is not should be number one in the world, but he, he did not could not play some events in America like Miami and Indian Wells because he wasn't vaccinated. But then when he won Wimbledon last year, he doesn't get credit for those points because because there was the the Ukraine war. They said where the Wimbledon doesn't get credit. So the events that he wins, he didn't credit for. He couldn't play in other events that he would have won, but he's still third. Alcaraz has won, but they seed them on the same side. They could have easily made Djokovic number two. They made Medvedev number two, and Medvedev has no shot to win this tournament at all. So the point is, it's ridiculous. 
ridiculous. Have a final. When I turn on Sunday in three, two weeks or whatever, I want to see Djokovic and Alcaraz. They've never met in a Grand Slam. Instead of meeting in the semifinals, have them meet in the finals. They keep doing this again. When Djokovic played Nadal with the quarterfinals, it's like ridiculous. Like put everyone knows Djokovic is the one or two best player in the world. Make him number two. Put him there, and so we can watch on Sunday. Because last year we saw Casper Ruud in the final. I don't want to see Casper Ruud in a final on Sunday. I want to see the iconic final matches. I mean, the sports, the other sports, doesn't have that chance. They have leagues, they have teams to go through. But when you have a seating, I just think tennis is terrible with that. So I'm upset about that. So let's turn to golf here. We don't have all that much time left. So I, I always use like social media as a barometer, especially when it comes to golf, because the PGA Tour has some fans that just hate live. And I look at this tournament, Harold Varner wins wins the live tournament, and everyone on social media, well, who'd he beat? There's nobody over there. What happened on the PGA Tour, Ira? Because I think this is Grigliano's second win, good for him. Who do you really beat here? Scotty Scheffler, absolutely, great golfer. He's always at the top. After that, some of these names are like, this guy's on the PGA Tour? This is not a great argument that the PGA Tour is so much more competitive than Liv. Well, I think we're going to go back and look at Kepka's win at the PGA Championship a couple of weeks ago as one of the defining moments. I saw the field. This was in the Liv played in D.C. and Charles Schwab was in Fort Worth. And you looked at the crowds in D.C. They had great. They had a great turnout. It was tremendous. Varner, it was a good win for him. Kepka was too busy going to the, the basketball and football, the hockey games. But I think you're starting to see that. And that's what it is, is that these players, these non-big events, if there's not a 20 million dollar person, you're going to have very little of the big it's names. load management. Yeah, load management there. <laughs> now, Scheffler, though, that's the one thing. I'll tell you what, Scheffler, I think Scheffler can just show up and finish in the top five anywhere he goes. It's amazing. Like, you're, he's so good. But, yeah, I mean, when you have the likes of uh, Adam Shank and Emilia, uh, Emiliano Grillo to, to compete with, it's maybe not as hard. I mean, I'm not knocking these guys for winning, but when you look at the leaderboard, do you think anyone wanted to see a Sunday playoff between Grillo and Shank? Right. That this is what you signed no, up for? No, that's, what, that's what's happening, and that's what, as we talked about, and we talked about Brooks Kepka is now growing in such popularity, and that we have a Honda, we have an event here. I mean, that's why we have an event in Honda Classic. Brooks Kepka should be the king of, of PGA Garden, you know, Palm Beach Gardens. They should have banners everywhere, but he's not going to play in the tournament because he's on live. So it's, it's ridiculous. But again, um, I, I, the Memorial is next week which is a huge tournament and where Jack Nicklaus's course in Ohio, then the Canadian Open, then the U.S. Opens in L.A., and then the Travelers, and then they go to Europe and start playing the British Open. You think we might have the biggest boxing match on hand in a decade? Uh, since Pacquiao Mayweather, I, I, when, it, when this came down, of course, boxing is like tennis. They have no idea what they're doing. And they make an announcement like it was just came down, I don't know, in the middle of like a playoff game where no one's even paying attention. But just so anyone knows, the last four years, Terrence Crawford and Errol Spencer, the two best fighters besides uh, uh, Alvarez um, uh, in, in boxing. Crawford's 39-0, 30 knockouts. Errol Spence, 28-0, 28-2 knockouts. Pound for pound, 1-2, 1-3, 1-4. I mean, who knows? They're tremendous. They've been tremendous for four years. I, I, this fight should have happened years ago. They finally, and then the funny thing is that on Twitter, they bash each other so much on Twitter. I hate you, I hate you. They finally met. I saw them on first take. They were so mellow. They were like, oh, we're looking forward to a good match and stuff like that. But it's July 29th. It's, it's going to be a tremendous, if you're going to watch one boxing match in the next five years, I've watched this. They are both tremendous. They both have tremendous power. They're both super fast. This is a fight, and they're both in sort of in their primes. So it's not like Pacquiao Mayweather, where they were a little past their primes. Like this is worth it. This is really one of the greatest matches you could have. These are two all-time great fighters, and they're gonna they're gonna uh, score off against each other. This is Iron Sports. We're very fortunate to have Dusty, Coach Dusty May of Florida Atlantic Owls. Of course, Coach May and the Owls 
had an amazing run through the NCAA tournament, made it to the Final Four. Coach Bay, thanks so much for coming on Iron Sports. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. So, Coach, I just want to go over a little bit about just to relive this great, great run that you had. Um, you know, you receded eighth in the tournament and you come in, you know, and some people said maybe a little higher. Eighth is a tough seed because you have eight and nine and then you have to play the first, the top seed usually. That's it. This year it wasn't. Um, what about your seeding and how comfortable were you going into this tournament, you know, with that seed? Well, I, I thought, well, we, we expected to be, in our minds, a seven, maybe eight. So nine was a little lower than we anticipated just based on our metrics. Uh, but I was more surprised at Memphis being an eight seed. We, I, I felt like over the, the course of the last month or two of the season, they were probably a, a top three or four seed. And with their entire body of work, maybe a five or a six. And for them to get eight, I thought, wow, this is a tough matchup against an underseeded team. Uh, but I did think we matched up relatively well with them, uh, despite their, their, their talent level. Um, so, yeah, we, we were excited to play them. But, yeah, we, we actually thought both teams were a little bit underseated, which is typical when you're not in a Power 5 uh, conference. And what a game. I mean, the fact that uh, Elijah Martin with the tip-in made it 64-63. Memphis goes on and they take a basket. And then, and then Janelle Davis misses a shot. Memphis gets the rebound. But Brandon Withers with that big steal gets the tip, you know, and, and you get the ball back, and then you call the play for Nicholas Boyd to score. Uh, scores as time expires. Just a, just a great. I mean, just it was chaos. I was watching that on TV. It was total chaos. It seemed like, but your team was under control. What an ending! Yeah, it was. It was very. Uh, it was back and forth. Our guys made a lot of great plays. Their guys made big time plays, and uh, it, it's what the NCAA tournament's about. It and intense evenly matched game that goes down to the wire and uh, we win the game essentially as time expires uh, as, as they didn't get a good look at the end. So um, what, a, what a great game and uh, very, very proud of our guys. Yeah, I, mean, I also like when, when Nicholas Boyd said he was complimenting Vladimir Golden for saying, look, it was all with him. He was the one who made the seal out that let me come and make the shot. I mean, he just always deflect, you know, giving praise to Golden for just making a great, really like a pick. You know, I thought that was pretty nice yeah. of him to say that. Um, well, when you watch our guys, if someone makes a shot, usually everyone's thinking the screener and the passer and the passer to the passer as opposed to the guy that, that received the ball and shot the basket in. So it's, it's, it's something that uh, our, our guys live daily. Yeah, and then the second round, so Fairly Dickinson upsets Purdue, a crazy upset in terms of the, this, the, this amazing upset, but you still, you know, even though you're a heavily favored team, you still have to be nervous because last year St. Peter's did that same thing. They upset Kentucky, then they beat Murray State and Purdue. So as much as you were a favorite, you go from that 8-9 game against uh, Memphis, you, you had a challenge against Fairly Dickinson was on, a, was on fire playing well. Yeah, they really improved throughout the season, and early on, they were a horrendous defensive team, and they found their, their uh, I, I guess, the, the right way for them to play down the stretch, and then they were small and quick, and their center shot the ball really well. So they presented a number of matchup problems because of our size at the five, just like they did for Purdue with Zach Eady at the five. So. Uh, it was a tough matchup. They pressed. They they played uh, extremely desperate. And, um, you know, it, it took everything we had to find a way to beat those guys. But, um, you know, that's that's the power of, of being uh, the underdog where I felt like every other game we had, um, I guess, more of an edge 
And that game, I felt like FDU probably had a little bit more of an edge than us. We were just fortunate to find a way to make enough plays to win. But hats off to them. They were small, scrappy, and, and obviously playing their best basketball of the year. And then I was in Orlando and saw Tennessee play Duke. I went to Duke Law School, so I went to, to that game down in Orlando. And, and Tennessee destroyed Duke. I mean, and I'm like, that team, they, first of all, they're an older team. They're gigantic. They, they were the best defense in the United States. And then you play in Madison Square Garden. I mean, what a challenge for your team. And to come out and, and actually, you know, you're down at halftime, 27-22. But to come out of that second half and just blow them out is just, not really blow them out, but just take that lead and score against them was very impressive. Yeah, we uh, Tennessee at the time was number one in the country in defensive uh, efficiency. Their defensive metrics were, were the best in, in the country in all of college basketball, 366 teams, I believe. And so they were very difficult. And we felt like after the first seven or eight minutes of the game, despite us missing shots, we kind of found our, our rhythm offensively. And we found different ways to generate good looks. So we were very confident coming out in the second half that we were going to be able to uh, find qual- enough quality looks to, to score enough to beat them. And, and our defense obviously uh, held down the fort. We were very physical in the glass. Uh, for us to out-rebound them like we did is, is a, once again, a testament to our guys' toughness and, and competitive spirit. But, um, you know, it was a battle. A lot of respect for those guys. And, uh, you know, fortunately, once again, we, we found a way to make enough plays to win. But um, it was it was a slugfest. And, and we all saw how physical Tennessee was and how how they make the game. Fortunately, uh, we caught a few breaks where they had – they got uh, – they got spotted for all for intentional fouls and gave us a couple free throws. So uh, those helped, but um, man, what, what a basketball game in, in Madison square garden. Maybe a little credit to Jay Billis who called them, <laughs> called Tennessee's behavior out a little bit in the Duke game and, and said that they were too rough. And maybe you got some, some calls, uh, you know, down the way from that, from that game. But um, yeah. then you play Kansas state. Now, again, you're in New York, Madison square garden. It's a little bit different than some of the other regionals because you're right there. Madison square garden, the Knicks, everything, the excitement, uh, and you're playing a tough Kansas State team, and Marcus Noel, who is calls himself Mr. New York from there, and has had this great run of the tournament. Now, he put up a great game with 30 points and 12 assists, but you were able to hang on and win that game. You know, anytime you feel like you did a pretty good job on a guy and he gets 30 and 12, <laughs> it shows what type of a basketball player he is. Uh, he had a special, special tournament run in his, in his home city. And uh, they had a good team. Keontae Johnson is a guy that uh, I know well from my days working at Florida. And so they had essentially two first-team all Big 12 caliber players, and then it had a bunch of really good role players that played hard, played together. So a really good basketball team that was uh, in in position to win the Big 12 for much of the season. So um, we knew we had our work cut out for us, but we also felt like we had a couple – advantages uh, just in personnel in our personnel and uh, we did a, a good enough job on, on Johnson and Noel uh, but another one another great basketball game an opportunity to go to final four that goes down to the wire uh, Mike Forrest continues to continue to make huge free throws down the stretch uh, clutch free throws and, and uh, we had once again just enough to, to, to advance uh, that was what you just said about Michael Forrest. I was going to ask you that. It's just, it seemed like at all these games, you mismade those key free throws. And then he's shooting that in Madison Garden with all the pressure, everything. And he goes and he just drains those four free throws at the end. Uh, just tremendous in terms of, but it was not just in that game with the free throws throughout the whole tournament. You just seemed to make always those clutch free throws. And not just one player, all the players did. Absolutely. Our, our guys show great courage. They, they weren't afraid of failure. 
they weren't afraid of the moment, and, and they continued to make timely shots, and, and that included the free throws. So, uh, you know, part of our job is, is, is to, to help these guys uh, respond under pressure in the, in the most stressful situations. And, and uh, you know, because of our practice habits and because of the, the preparation our guys put into the game and their sport, they were able to really – uh, make the plays in the biggest moments, and, and uh, that's not that's not easy to do. <laughs> so then we go to Houston, and it was a great scene there in Houston. I mean, I was there; it was awesome. Um, and but I loved like your comments kept saying, "Look, our players are grounded. We're here. This is a business trip. You know, we're looking and we're enjoying it, but we're here to to win." You you, you felt you know you're playing a team like San Diego State. I mean, Brian Dutcher is a is a great coach. It seems like you seem to have a good relationship with him. Um, I thought, and of course, you know, one of the games for the ages in terms of one of the best Final Four games I've ever seen between. You you guys in San Diego State. Yeah, obviously a lot of respect for the program. They, they, it was almost like we were playing ourselves. They were older, uh, they were physical, they were strong, they were tough, uh, and they were extremely together and unselfish. And those are the, the, the traits that I thought were, were very similar to our team. They played nine players. Most teams play seven or eight. Uh, so our depth was, was an advantage almost every other game all season. That game, it was probably neutralized. And uh, it, it was two evenly matched, similar teams. And, and fortunate, unfortunately for us, uh, they had the ball last and, and, and made a huge play. But um, once again, in that environment, our guys, Giancarlo Rosado and, and Elijah Martin, had uh, two of their better games of the year. And once again, to be able to, to perform on that stage in front of that many people live and on television, is, is something that prepares our guys for, for life well past basketball, where they're going to be able to, to produce. And, and you know, I, 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 I'm always trying to figure out ways to inspire our, our guys to be better. When you, you look at the number of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and, and small businesses, a lot of them are former college athletes because they know how to deal with that stress and pressure and not only deal with it, but also – uh, respond well to it and, uh, and and live in the moment. So um, our guys, they, they had a lot of important life lessons they were learning through this process. I mean, it was... It, the Final Four is crazy. You never play in a stadium with 70,000 people and 80,000. It's just, and it's enormous and, and, and how they set it out in terms of where they put the, so it's just completely different than, than normal basketball. I mean, the, and then we're watching the NBA playoffs and I mean, finals, they're not playing in stadiums like this. So to actually go in there and perform in a completely different, crazy environment, just, I'm so, you must be so proud of your team and how they, you know, in that game. Uh, mesmerized. At, at how they they were during the game, before the game, after the game. They just really represented our university, uh, our community, their families. They represented everyone that they're associated with at such a high level and a professional uh, manner that uh, couldn't be more proud and uh, excited to uh, hopefully – uh, make a run at Phoenix next year. <laughs> so we're looking now. We're going to turn the page a little bit for, for to next year. You're going to be in a new conference, the American Conference, which which is a, which is a little a step up. Even though Conference USA has some good teams, American Conference is very good. Um, so that, that's going to be a different challenge for you. You're going to be seeing different teams that you haven't played seen before, and it'll be exciting, I guess, for your players. Yeah, it's almost like we took a new job, or it's almost like they transferred <laughs> with, with all their teammates and brothers with them because we're going to see. Uh, so many new teams, new cities, new arenas. So, um, and then obviously our pre-conference schedule changes every year. So it does almost feel like we're at a new job now, 
Uh, and so it kind of keeps everything fresh and, and whatnot. And uh, obviously we have a, a lot of work to do with scouting and learning our new opponents. But uh, with the with the transfer portal and the revolving rosters, I don't know if you could even start preparing until just before the game. <laughs> because there's, there's so much turnover on just about every roster. Every roster but yours. Now, I might be saying this incorrectly, but there's 363 Division One schools. Only five of them did not lose a player in the transfer portal, and one was you, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, very impressive. And, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of times people, coaches, players, they, they don't really value uh, each other as much as our guys do. I think there's a really uh, great mutual respect amongst our players, amongst our players and coaches, and, and we all uh, really enjoy the relationships and bonds we've been able to create together. And it, it's not easy or common to have 25 or 30, however many people in our travel party, like-minded people uh, that are all unselfish, all extremely hardworking, uh, but most importantly, concerned with each other's success as well. So it's a special, special group, and I don't think any one of any of us wanted to mess that up uh, because of, 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 of things that we're chasing outside of. Uh, the, you know the purity of the game and the relationships and, and what we've been able to do together. Oh, I know. I mean, you, Forrest, uh, Michael Forrest is a senior, so he ha- he's graduated, so he left. But there are players in your program that were starters when the year started that became, you know, in the rotation, but still second team players. Everyone's assumed that oh, they'll transfer out. You know, they'll go somewhere different. I mean, that's that's how college basketball is now. Just so amazing that everyone has decided to come back, even the people that are not, you know, that fell out of that starting rotation. It's just a it's a tour de force for your team, and and I guess for your motivation coming back this year to to try to get you know it's get to phoenix and and win the extra two games yeah there's 13 scholarship players and most programs play with a seven or eight man rotation we play with a nine so there was four scholarship players that were out of out of the rotation last year and it's, it's difficult to stay ready to continue to work and prepare uh, like you're a starter if you're not getting into the games and so our, our staff, we, we're very intentional to spend time with those guys, and, and the development piece is extremely important. And what we've come to find is players enjoy their experience and they do feel like they're getting better. They'll usually wait their turn a little bit longer than they would if they're not improving and the relationship's not extremely strong and, and they don't have faith that it's going to happen for them at some point. Uh, but we also uh, we, we remind our players a lot that you know, this year we played 39 games. In a normal year, you play 32 to 35. And if our happiness is, is derived on 35 nights out of the year, then it's, it's going to be a tough existence in this sport because you're not going to play well every night. Things aren't going to go well for you. So you're looking at probably 330 to 340 days of uh, marginal happiness if you're only going to be happy when you play and play well. So we try to enjoy practice. We try to enjoy workouts, just the day-to-day uh, business that, that, that we do. And uh, if, we, if we have that mindset, then, then we feel like the game is a reward because we enjoy uh, what, what goes into it a lot more than, than just the results of the game. And the challenge you have for this year is that last year you were picked fifth in the Conference USA, sort of came out of nowhere, even though you felt you were developing that in, in good shape. But this year you're in 
seems like everybody's top 10, some as high as five and six. Um, how do you keep the focus? I mean, how, again, like I, I point back to North Carolina a couple years ago when they made it to the final game and I was like, okay, they're bringing everybody back. They're going to be the favorite and then they don't even make the tournament. So it's, it's, it's not just like we have the same guys. It's like we have to improve and get better. It must be. It's, I mean, are you calling Hubert Davis or what are you doing in terms of getting this team, you know, putting yes last year behind and, and, and building upon that, but, but going forward for this year? Well, we spend a lot of time trying to anticipate what our problems and issues are going to be. Uh, every team, every organization, the Miami Heat, they were a eight or nine seed. They, they were a playing game, but they, they found solutions to their problems and, and they continue to evolve. So for us, we're always trying to anticipate what are the issues going to be and can we decide now how we're going to respond to those issues. And even you mentioned North Carolina, we're going to use them as an example going forward. Um, we know their staff. We know some of the things that they didn't manage very well. And so we're, we're going to be very aware of those issues while also anticipating the issues that pertain to us and our situation. So um, part of our job is to anticipate problems and then get out ahead of those problems. And if we're able to do that, then usually uh, they're, they're a lot easier to just to smooth, uh, smooth over. But, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where the resiliency of our group, the, the relationships have to be uh, much stronger than, than the problems. And if they are, then we'll find ways to, to battle through adversity, to battle through a, a two-game losing streak or three-game losing streak, whatever the case, whatever the season throws at you, we'll be able to battle through it and play our best basketball when it really matters, which is March and April. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And now the, the schedule for next year, you're still coming to focus. I mean, I have friends who are you know, in college basketball. I keep asking them, okay, what are you going to play? Like, Ira, your schedule, we don't, we don't finish it. It takes some time. It's not like the NFL. Yeah. You know, they, they, and so you're still, but I know that you have a tip-off classic in Boca Raton earlier in the year. Is there any other dates that maybe you're, you're, you've, you've narrowed down in terms of finalized that have some other maybe non-conference schedules, uh, teams that would come in? No, everything that's been released is what we have finalized. Uh, we're, we're still working on adding one or two more games. But for the most part, it's 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 you know, it's done. We'll play Florida Gulf Coast. Um, I believe we'll, we'll attempt to play FIU every year, home or away, uh, because of proximity. And they've been a great rival, and we have a lot of respect for them. So there's some games like that that, that we'll play. Uh, Albany's scheduled uh, to play here. They, that might be postponed for one year. Uh, we're working with them on that. So there's still some uh, some, some different balls in the air, but um, it's getting closer and closer to being finished. And uh, the MTE in Orlando is going to be great playing four games on ESPN, the, the Barstool Classic event, the, the Hall of Fame Classic event. So we're getting into some pretty cool uh, tournaments and classics now that uh, we weren't able to get into in the past. That's just awesome. Well, Coach May, I know you're super busy. You know, there's so much in South Florida. We have the hockey playing great, the heater playing great. Uh, you had a great time. This is just, uh, it's it, it, hopefully it all feeds upon each other. Um, and I'm just looking forward to next year. And, and I know you have lofty expectations, but it'd be great to, to see you guys back in the Final Four uh, in Phoenix. Let's uh, let's let's hope the Marlins get get hot and make a run at it, and uh, this will be a special sports year in South Florida. Oh, I, I saw that you threw the opening pitch out of the game, but I didn't see the pitch. They didn't show that. They showed that you did, was a, Did you throw a strike for your first opening pitch? Uh, well, if I if there was a batter that would swing at a ball in the dirt, it would have been a strike. <laughs> okay, maybe it was a curveball or anything. Well, that's great. So that's a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't think the game ball they they give it to you when you leave. I don't think there's supposed to be a scuff on it, but for some reason there's a scuff <laughs> on my ball. 
<laughs> well, that's good. That then that's what you probably have suppressed that video because I didn't, I didn't get a chance to see it. But uh, but that's hey, someone else uh, someone else put the overhead uh, camera view on it from uh, the the boxes and it showed where the pitch started and landed. And uh, we considered uh, putting out a cease and desist, but uh, we, <laughs> we decided against it. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Coach, and, and great and good luck for the rest of the summer and getting into the fall. Thanks, Ira. Ira, today is a very special Monday. The saying holds true. All gave some, but some gave all. Happy Memorial Day to everyone on behalf of Ira on Sports. Thanks so much to Dusty May. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.